0: You're listening to the Bridging the Gap podcast, hosted by Doris. So,
1: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Bridging the Gap podcast, run by Doris. I'm Amy and today I'm here with Tim Franklin.
0: Hello Amy, thank you for inviting me, it's good to be here.
1: Thank you so much for coming um, and for being part of the Doris journey and continuing to support us. Can you tell us uh, and the audience a little bit about you and how you ended up in the chair over there being (laughs) interrogated. Okay, well (laughs) I'll do my best.
0: I mean I've worked in financial services most of my life, so I didn't go to university. I left school with A-levels and joined Barclays Bank. I've spent most of my career in financial services over 30 years, worked in a variety of different banks and other organisations, lots of uh, general management roles in that time. Uh, I've worked in e-business, sales, marketing, in the branch network for Barclays and other places too. Uh, and now I have a portfolio career, so that means that I sit on boards as an independent director, um, as a chairman and a director, to hold the management to account for the delivery of their strategies.
1: So how did you get from not having a degree uh, and into Barclays? What, how, what was the story behind that?
0: I left school after doing my A-levels.
1: What did you do A-levels
0: in? English, uh, history and economics. Uh, and I, um, I'd entered a... Uh, an essay competition that Barclays did for A level students, and I uh, oh. was one of the people that won it. So um, there were fifty winners uh, across the UK, and we went on a trip around Europe we went to Belgium, Germany, France, Austria, Italy, Switzerland, Liechtenstein. Flew wow. home from Venice.
1: What was the essay on?
0: Uh, it was a. St- uh, it was the title of the essay <laughs> yeah. was. I'm trying really hard to think back. <laughs> it it was about uh, somebody returning to the D-Day landing days in Northern France with their family and seeing the gravestones of their fallen comrades. And it was their reflections on reliving their experience at D-Day and how they had been so lucky to survive that and be here now as voyeurs, almost of, you know, the graves of the fallen heroes.
1: I thought you were gonna say (laughs) something about finance or banking or the crash or something.
0: English was always my thing at school. Uh, more than oh. mathematics and more than you know finance, which is ironic when you consider what I've done since then. Yeah. So I was always very creative around English. Uh, loved the English language and English literature. Did them both as, actually as A levels, and um, the story was, was a more imaginative one than you might have thought as a yeah. result of that.
1: So Barclays took you on a trip around Europe, and then yeah. thought
0: I thought I owed them one.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So what was your first role, what, how, um, what would you do? I
0: did work experience when I was doing my A-levels uh, in a branch near where I lived at the time in South East London um, for a week or so and mm. I also worked for the London Evening Standard um, because I wanted to be a journalist so I wasn't sure what I wanted oh. to
1: do. Um,
0: having spent some time with, in journalism I realised that that lifestyle really didn't suit me. Mm. Um, it, it was a very uh, anti-social type of life um, so mm. I took the more Boring path towards banking. Worked in the branch <laughs> network uh, in a variety of different roles across Barclays, and then because I didn't have a degree, um, I was fortunate enough in the sense that some somebody more senior, as often the case, took me under their wing and suggested that I applied to get onto the career development program, which yeah. was their accelerated program for graduates. Normally,
1: right,
0: I went through the assessment process there through interviews and tests and so on. Uh, and was amazed to actually get on it. So the degree no longer mattered. And then I was onto the fast tracking that gave me access to lots of different roles.
1: When was that? If you don't mind me asking, <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot.
0: It was in the uh, late uh, 20th century. <laughs> <coughs> um, when would it have been? I think it was probably about 1993 or 4, probably.
1: So at that time, what was? did you face any questions or challenges or, or stereotypes around not having a degree? Or was that a time when it was not... Uh, really thought of as something you had
0: to have. It definitely mattered in Barclays at that time if you wanted to get into the career development program so it's quite unusual to get onto it without one. Um, I I wasn't ever really terribly self-conscious of not having one because when I left school and started working for Barclays I took my uh, Institute of Banking exams and through night school and got a banking degree so I ended up getting a degree. Yeah but not the traditional route. Through a different route and not by going to university yeah. So I've never looked back, nor have I ever regretted it, um, because when many of my friends were at university, I was earning money, yeah. so um, you know, yeah. it was a different time of course, things are different now for a lot of people.
1: Absolutely, yeah. well, it's very, very expensive to go to university now, yeah. and there are lots of different ways in which I think is a lot <coughs> why people uh, focus on the digital skills gap, because even if you have a degree that doesn't mean that you're over the bridge, if if that makes sense. Because, um, well, I was reading a Deloitte report that has come out this morning and they say the their HR manager said, it's no surprise that education can't prepare people for work and there's a digital skills gap because technical skills nowadays last five years. That's like the lifespan of a technical skill. And then they go extinct and there's new ones um, and you have to plan for that. At that time, what was your main skill? What was your passion and your, your drive in that in that area? Because you were in finance and banking yeah. um, and technology was just coming in and invading that world.
0: Well, I think probably the greatest strength that I had at the time was around communication. So yeah. um, I did a lot of media work for Barclays on BBC Sky, ITV, lots of stuff really mm. for them, um, which gave me more profile inside the organisation and uh, sales and marketing in particular were the spine of really the things that I um, did and had responsibility for over much of my career but I took a big risk around about 2000 uh, and decided after spending 20 years nearly at Barclays at that stage it was time to move on so I went on to a different financial services business uh, attracted to that business because I thought there was more chance of me getting onto the board there and in due course I did Mm. but um, I was uh, taken into the business to head up e-business. Now it's worth remembering at the beginning of you know two thousand, um, the fully functioning internet websites that we have today and take very much for granted yeah. were not commonplace. Nah. So this organisation didn't have much capability on its website. You know, mobile applications were unheard of at that stage. This was in the infancy mm. really of you know um, the internet for financial services. So I went in and ran an e-business incubator. Um, which was run in a VC, venture capital type of way. So the organization set up um, a, a board, if you like, of people who would assess the ideas that my team and I would take to them. And the organization would decide if they were gonna fund them or not. So we would take opportunities to them to create new digital things. And one of which was the um, uh, fully interactive digital television advertising. Wow. which uh, we were the very first people in the world to do,
1: wow.
0: um, which in essence it aired on the Sky platform after an episode of The Simpsons or in the <laughs> middle of one, I can't remember. And um, if you, I think it was if you were interested in a mortgage at the time, you'd watch our advert, which was a traditional TV advert, and then if you rest, press the red button on your Sky remote control, we'd send out a fulfillment pack to you wow. and you'd have the opportunity to complete an application and wow. send it to us. But how basic is that? You you were just getting a paper pack delivered to you in the post. um, Which shows you, it's kind of date stamps, I suppose, the infancy of the internet at that time.
1: Who was on that team with you and who did you present to? I'm I'm asking in terms of Mm. age, gender, background, and then who were you presenting to?
0: Well, um, part of my responsibility when I went to this organisation was to create the team. It didn't exist because e-business was relatively unheard of. Um, So we actually took a cross section of people from within the organisation, from different disciplines with different skills and different age groups and different backgrounds to try and get a really good strong mix. Mm. Nobody at the time was terribly digitally in a, uh, Sally, aware, yeah. there were no digital natives in those days, mm. it was sort of the Neanderthal period yeah. um, for the internet, but well, it,
1: it was also the creators yeah. because what we say now is if you're a digital native, that means you can consume technology doesn't mean automatically that you can create it in the 80s and 90s that's when the innovators actually created it and turned it into something tangible for businesses yeah and then for individuals in your personal life and then the generations after that are at the minute consumers yeah because yes we're used to Mm -hmm. it and we can figure it out quickly but that's because we've consumed it all our lives we're not at the point yet maybe just starting to now where we are turning into the creators
0: yeah we're building on other people's knowledge all the time and at that point i think this is the point you're making it was almost like a blank tablet of stone yeah, you had there was to, nothing there yeah right so we had to build from that yeah and every um,
1: i bet every time something new came out it was just really exciting and you were right in the middle of all of yeah that.
0: all kinds of new technologies are being developed at the time so bluetooth for example yeah. i remember the day that You know, People mentioned that Bluetooth had come out and nobody really knew quite what it was or how it could be deployed and what the use for it would be, but nevertheless it was there as a capability.
1: Businesses have to understand like, okay, how are we going to mould this to work for us and how can we make money and how can we grow off it? Yeah.
0: Well, one of the great things for me in my background in financial services was that for most of my career up to this point. Many of the people that I'd worked with had come from FMCG, you know, fast moving consumer Mm. goods backgrounds. And they'd had physical things that they could sell and market, you know, fridges, washing machines, hi-fi systems, which again, date (laughs) stands the time. Uh, And they came into financial services, which was relatively less interesting for them because the products were intangible. Mm. The great thing about the digital space for financial services is it's made for financial services. Because financial services are, by definition, intangible products and services. Yeah,
1: you can't have it. You can't get it delivered in in the post, like you're saying. Even though you get these pieces of paper, you can't really see what's happening.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So this this was a real great, really great opportunity. In many ways, financial services was found itself at the vanguard of innovation and change, because it actually was able to distribute a product uh, that's intangible. In through this new medium called the internet, mm. and then to, to carry on the point about how did we go about setting up the team, having established a cross uh, group of people with you know very different backgrounds and skill sets, um, I then thought it was very important that we didn't work inside the organisation, the legacy organisation. Mm. So we went off site to a new environment where we could create a different type of culture.
1: It's all—it's so much about culture. It's
0: so much. It, the whole thing's about <laughs> yeah. culture. I was doing an interview with somebody somebody the other day and similar point really, which is when people talk about transformation more generally, not just digital transformation, they concentrate on the technology and the process and very little on the people. Mm. The reality is all of it fails if the culture's not right and if the people aren't right. So by working in an offsite location away from the legacy business, we were able to free people from the constraints of thinking about the the existing world, which was liberating But the other point as well is that people in the legacy organisation were threatened by the internet, threatened by the change, and actually, you know, unintentionally were trying to stifle the change and innovation that was happening. So we incubated this e-business team and its ideas, rolled them out into the legacy organisation and then gradually used the culture that we developed outside and away from the business to start to... Integrate it back into the culture in the main business and change some of those cultural traits so that the whole business started to become more digitally aware, digitally enabled, you know, was able to, to be faster, cheaper, better, more innovative, more customer focused than perhaps it had been previously.
1: What was the reaction to that?
0: Well, initially, I guess it's a bit like when you have an infection and the body tries to. You know, <laughs> the immune, yeah, Absolutely. yeah, the immune system tries to do it off. Uh, which was the very reason why we started the e-business incubator away from the main legacy organization. But over time, I think people started to see the benefit of it. Um, This organization was customer-centric anyway. So it was able to, um, the people were able to appreciate that this was good for customers. And over a period of time, um, and they became customers themselves. And it was one of the key things that I wanted to do was to make sure when we rolled out new ideas and new initiatives, we used our own people, our own staff first. Mm -hmm. So you know when we when we had a new innovation around uh, a t- particular type of account, we would say to them for, for them and their families, friends and families, try out this new version of it before it goes live for customers and through that, we created advocates of our people
1: and If you do that, then the cult, then that, the culture follows and <coughs> that that positive atmosphere obviously now in the workplace is all uh, agile, all yeah. fl- a lot more flexibility and things like that. Obviously at that organisation, that was really successful and you made it onto the board. When you're on the board, what changed then in how you uh, could influence different areas and the culture and things like that?
0: Well, I think probably the best way of answering that question is to talk about, it f- about diversity. Yeah. And we often talk about diversity as gender and colour and religious beliefs and all of those yeah. things, of course, and sexual orientation, and they're all very important. Yeah. And of course, they're all elements of diversity. But diversity is also about different types of thinking, different Mm. ways of looking at problems. You know, people, uh, younger people tend to be more quick adopters of new technology and digital things. I like to think that I'm at the forefront of it even now. Yeah, Yeah. you (laughs) are. Yeah, and age doesn't define you. But it it tends to be that younger people are more um, aware and more digitally savvy, and they grew up with this technology so one of the things I've always tried to encourage board colleagues to think about is that the people that we need to employ they're not necessarily like us and they don't look like us yeah and just because they're not hunched over their desk at seven o'clock in the evening when everybody's gone you know should be at home anyway doesn't mean they're not hard-working big contributors to the business so diversity you know, a guy wearing a hoodie and wearing headphones and working away on his laptop who doesn't want to be interrupted but he's creating something wonderful is as valuable as an employee as somebody wearing a suit who's, you know, clocking in, leaving late hours and doing all those things. The you know,
1: definition of, of the ideal employee is definitely changing and becoming much, much wider, I think.
0: We have to shatter the paradigm. Yeah. And I think that is happening, and I think, you know, your organization, Doris, is. A key contributor to that, you going into organisations with new and different types of people, who those organisations probably haven't had before or can't find or attract. Absolutely,
1: they can't find and can't attract. We say we can't find. We will find the people who won't find you, and it's not because the people in, say, a big financial organisations aren't looking and. doing the right things to attract they don't they have the right intentions but it's about the brand a lot of the time um and the the people that are currently uh, employed in the organization so yes we help hopefully help um, customers to understand that and bring different types of people in
0: and the organizations themselves have got to adapt and change because when you attract you finally manage to find the right people the next and biggest trick is to retain them yeah. You know, in many respects, recruitment is obviously only the very beginning of the process of finding the right people. Yeah. Clearly, that's self-evident. Yeah. But actually embedding the skills, capabilities, behaviours and cultural differences that those people bring, that's a whole new board game.
1: And how have you done that, pioneered that on all the different um, boards that you're on now?
0: Well, I think the first thing is to identify it's an issue, and we've talked about that, yeah. and the fact that people don't look necessarily like the people that you're used to seeing inside an organisation. Yeah. So that element of diversity and holding the senior management team to account for that is a really important part of my responsibility. Um, so you know we measure those sorts of things, and the tenure of the employees and their age. and. Uh, and all of those things really, really matter, so I'm keen on that. Mm. The other thing as well is making sure that the people in the boardroom go outside the boardroom, become more integrated into the business, think like customers and think like employees. And, you know, we have, um, I've chaired groups of um, people from across the organisation, um, particularly younger people, to find out what they think when they've been with us for three or six or 12 months as an opportunity to, for them to give feedback to us about what needs to be different.
1: Are they usually, I don't want to say terrified or scared or nervous, because. but what's their reaction to you as a board member when, when you walk into a room or are asking them these questions? Do you think that they are being as honest as they want to be with you um, or how do you break down those communication channels and, and make people feel? confident
0: well I've got a daughter of a similar age group to many of the people that we're talking about in their 20s so I'm quite used to being with those kinds of people and understand quite a lot about the way that they are I like to think that you know it can be quite um, when I let my hair down I I don't think there's anything terribly scary (laughs) actually maybe that is scary (laughs) um, I I think you earn trust over time yeah but most importantly people respond when they see things change as a result of the feedback they've given and I think that spreads you know word of mouth so if people come to something have an opportunity to provide feedback and nothing changes then there's no integrity in the process and they tell their friends it's hardly worth you going to speak to these Mm. people because nothing's going to be different afterwards so I'm a big fan of making sure that we always publicize the changes and give credits where they came from so on a sort of you said we did kind of basis Uh, and things do change as a result you know we, we we've set up things like DAFT Rules Amnesties.
1: <laughs> What's that? Well,
0: bring out bring out your dead. Bring out the, you know, people <laughs> yeah. people come forward and say, Why is it that my expenses have to be in by the twenty eighth of the month and be signed by two people before they get processed and then it takes three weeks to be processed? Good question. You know, why is it that, you know, we have to use your device rather than our own device when actually we've all got, you know, iPhones and iPads of our own and it's yeah not productive, nor is it efficient or cost effective for the organization to be providing us with things we already own. Hiding behind the illusion um. that it's all about security and ha- all about you know, the integrity of data. Of course, that's sometimes true, but yeah. not always. So the daft rules amnesty has been designed to enable people to come forward and tell us what those daft things are and for us to address them.
1: What would be your thing?
0: Um, <laughs> I think one of my uh pet hates really is the feeling that people have that they have to be present in the office to yeah. demonstrate that they're doing a good job yeah so I, I never have been a fan of nor am i now presenteeism mm,
1: clocking in clocking yeah, out.
0: yeah clocking in and clocking out it's a waste of time yeah. we live in a fully digitally enabled 24 365 world and yet we talk about the passion that we have for the environment the need to address climate change and yet we insist that people travel sometimes 50 minutes or more a day yep. to get to work to yep. sit at a desk that they could be doing at home the same work from and i fully understand that collaboration developing a culture the social interaction the workplace those things are all very very important but we as employers all of us as employers need to be more flexible about the way we adopt those policies to make sure that we don't allow that to stifle innovation or to stop people getting the balance that they need in life and I think that's one of the key ways you attract people.
1: Is that a new thought? So like when you were when you were brought into Barclays or the, the next organisation, was that a thought then or is that something that's come about because of The needs and wants of Millennials and Generation Z that are coming into the workplace?
0: I think it's not only the needs of the Millennials and and Generation Z I think it's the needs of everybody yeah so you know for a lot of people um, now they have older parents that they need to look after they have children they need to pick up from school they may not be Millennials or they just have other pressures in their life that make the normal nine-to-five working day more difficult for them and actually they'd much rather work you know 11 till Seven yeah. or eight or whatever the timescales are, and there's no need for them not to. I much prefer to measure people on outputs and inputs. Yeah. It's you know the, to answer your question directly. If I go back to the beginning of my career, people would seem to be measured almost exclusively on their inputs. Yeah. How long have you been here? How long have what have you you know w- what have you been working on today? Mm-hmm. The reality is, something brilliant could take you an hour to do, not eight hours to do. Yeah. So let's measure people on the outputs.
1: And what would you say to maybe your younger self, or maybe yourself not that long ago, or even your bosses at the time uh, about doing things differently and enabling people to succeed?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's always an interesting thing to think back and think, what yeah. would I have done differently, and, and and how would I have thought differently? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that I would do if I had the chance to go back would be to buy as many Apple shares as I possibly <laughs> could, and uh, invest heavily in Amazon. <laughs> Very but yeah.
1: Put buy in some that, Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and as many bitcoins as you can possibly. <laughs> yeah. Make. But um, one of the things I probably would go back and say to myself is worry less. Yeah. Because worrying um and stressing about your career and being ambitious and all those things is of course a fuel that helps people to move forward but it also can be a destructive thing Mm. it can be an inhibitor of creativity and we've talked a lot about that in this conversation about innovation so i think my advice to myself be lighten up things will probably be okay and probably take care of themselves the other thing that i say to a lot of people when we're talking you know uh, when i'm coaching people which is one of the things that i do is never underestimate the power of being liked. Never underestimate the importance of human interaction and Mm. being a good citizen in the workplace to other people and how that makes a difference and matters to the people around you. Culture is something that comes from the top of an organisation but in the same way that a fish rots from the head. Mm. If the top of the organisation doesn't reflect the importance of people, doesn't reflect and understand the importance of culture and the leadership dimensions don't embrace diversity that we've talked about, organizations won't move forward won't be ever be able to cope in a digital world because they won't get the right people to come and stay and work for them
1: i think that's a really amazing message to everybody no matter what seniority level or uh where whatever background you come from is never underestimate the power of being liked and doing what you can to help others and just make the workplace a enjoyable and not hostile place. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I you know, fully commercial environment, the I mean, commercial environment, and we mm. got to make money, otherwise nobody will have a job. So yeah. it's not about just being one giant love in. I, I want to address yeah. the balance there. Yeah. It's about making sure that the balance is there. You know, moderation is a favorite word of mine. Most things are, most, things, not everything Amy, most things <laughs> are okay in moderation. Yeah, And so being fully commercially focused with no thought for people, Burns out your people, creates massive problems from a turnover perspective. Probably means customers are dissatisfied because there's no continuity in the people that they deal with. Being fully about people with no consideration to commercial side of things is ultimately bad for the people, mm. because if you don't think about it from a commercial perspective, the business doesn't make money and the people lose their jobs and livelihoods. So it's always about moderation and balance.
1: Definitely, couldn't agree more. That's all we've got time for.
0: Well, thank you for me. You've got to me. run
1: off. We've got to uh, run off. And so thank you very, very much for a really, really interesting conversation uh, and to speaking to everybody uh, who's listening about your journey.
0: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. I uh, hope you tune in next time for the next episode of the Bridging the Gap podcast. Thank you. Goodbye.